the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the podcast along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And I just wanted to let you know that we have a very special event coming up. Um, and you are all welcome to join us live at Neshota House on July 23rd. So we're going to have a live event with the very Reverend Dr. John Bear and Dr. Amy Brown-Hughes. Um, and we'll be talking about theology and patristics and the early church and origin and all that stuff. And it's going to be a really fun evening from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. And it's at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. So for any of you who are nearby um, or want to make the trip, it'll be really fun to see some of you there. Um, I know a lot of you longtime listeners are, are in the Midwest because I get these little maps with uh, our hosting, our podcast hosting service, and it tells us where people are from. And I know that there are a bunch of... Um, Midwesterners who listen in, and it would be great to see you there. So that's July 23rd, uh, 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. at Neshota House, and I think by the time you hear this, there'll be a notice on our website, onscript.study, um, an Eventbrite link that you could um, uh, click on to, um, to find an RSVP about this. It would be great if you could RSVP that way. We get a sense of how many people are coming and food and all that kind of stuff. So maybe bring a few dollars for food and drink donations um, if you'd like to do that. But um, yeah, so hope to see you there and we hope that you enjoy this episode. Welcome, OnScript superfans. And now we know that includes Dr. Brent Strawn. I'm talking to you. Today we have Dr. Ryan O'Dowd with us. Uh, Ryan is actually currently, if I remember correctly, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserves, an Anglican pastor in Ithaca, New York, and a senior fellow at the Chesterton House at Cornell University. And he has written several scholarly books, and he has more to come, and we'll talk about those later. But of the ones he's written so far... Uh, His dissertation was published as The Wisdom of Torah, Epistemology and Deuteronomy in the Wisdom Literature. Uh, He co-wrote a book with Craig Bartholomew called Old Testament Wisdom Literature, A Theological Introduction. And you'll start to see a theme here now. He also has written the book that we're going to talk a little bit about today, Proverbs Commentary in the Story of God Bible Commentary Series. Welcome to OnScript, Ryan. Thank you, Drew. It's a pleasure. So we've known each other for a while. In fact, um, I first ran into your dissertation when I was working on my dissertation, and I uh, used it as a... I I was very excited to run into your work because, for me, it represented another person who was thinking about the biblical text in in a similar way, and I thought it was a great model. You know, it was... Everybody I've seen that has read that uh, highly regards that work, and I thought it was a great model, but that's not how you remember our first conversation. No. <laughs> um, I still, uh, we go back, and I, I always tell the story this way, but um, we agreed to Skype. And I think maybe I read some chapters from your work. And I remember my first impression was Drew just found this piece, which I agree, we were doing the same thing. 
but it was a little bit like the conversation was, this is a bit of a mess. Can I help you think through, you know, what you've tried to do here? And, um, and I feel like I'm a little more forgiving now uh, about that book because there wasn't a template. You know, you're trying to ask questions that you think are really important. And then all of a sudden a couple of people think, yeah, I'm having the same questions too. So it's exciting now, but I think, yeah, then seeing your work follow on afterwards was always a little bit humbling, but it was, um, yeah, it was fun too because we were doing the same stuff. Well, I was just reading Yaku Jerki's book again the other day, and uh, I noticed how, you know, he comes out strong against people maybe he doesn't think have their act fully together or they're being a little too confessional or what he would call fundamentalist in their, yeah, uh, but not you. He carves out, like, Ryan O'Dowd's work is kind of considered a, a, a golden example for him, so... Um, yeah, so I think uh, it is, and it's a great book. I think it's the only book of yours I don't own because of the price alone. Uh, but I remember sitting in the St. Andrews Library furiously copying notes out of it uh, for a couple of months when we had it on loan. So it's a great book. Um, so, so what got you into wisdom literature? Uh, and maybe we can talk about what keeps you in it, but uh, what got you here in the first place? Yeah, so I showed up um, with Craig Bartholomew and um, then... Uh, Gordon McConville and then eventually, eventually um, Anthony Thistleton. It was kind of a, I had a diverse group, but Craig Bartholomew was really the supervisor through my whole process. And I knew I wanted to study knowledge. I didn't have like a professional philosophical um, epistemology that I was working on. I just, I just wanted to think about knowledge. I knew it was a big deal in some areas and I was really fascinated with Deuteronomy. And so I worked on that, you know, probably for eight or nine months. And, uh, and Craig really just said, sure, you don't want to do the wisdom literature? And you can imagine, I mean, you've got a, a room full of library books and articles that you've been reading about, and I couldn't let go of that. Um, fortunately, the, the conversation between Deuteronomy and Proverbs is so historic and rich that I was able to just combine them. But it was, it was Craig's idea, and it took me years to kind of figure that out, that um, the wisdom literature is a conversation that's already being had around philosophy, around knowledge, around worldview, and you could, uh, if, you, if you go and master the wisdom literature and really spend time there, it's going to free up and open up what you could do with Deuteronomy. And I think that's, that proved to be true. And it made the project harder, you know, having to work with two totally different genres. But, um, yeah, it was Craig's wisdom. And it took, um, yeah, it took me a while to figure that out. So that was a topic handed to you and said, like, <laughs> yeah. like hey, go work on this. Wouldn't you like to? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh. And I, I sure would like to supervise you doing this over right. here. And, um Right. That's, it, that's it, hard to turn down when, when they show an interest and say, oh, I would really like to supervise that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they have the wisdom you just don't even have. You know, they can see ahead uh, f far further. So, yeah, and then I ended up there. You know, somehow um, I got asked to do one or two Deuteronomy things early on, and then invitations started to come to write in the wisdom literature, and it stuck. That's right, because you had some essays, two essays, in that uh, Robin, Perry, Mary Healy collection of essays, the epistemology of the Bible or something like that? Yeah, and I think actually the Deuteronomy piece there is the better piece. It's, um, it's gotten more attention, more responses from people, and um, I still like that, um, that kind of exploration, and um, I go back to it, but, um, th but then the wisdom literature one was there too. Hmm. Now, uh, wisdom literature is a tough place to hang out. Um, lots of uh, very sharp scholars in that field, so um, we'll, we'll get to what you do full-time for a living, but what keeps you on here? Why, why is this still interesting to you? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, since I've become, I mean, you mentioned that at the beginning, I've become a pastor, and probably some of it's convenience that, um, you know, to stay, 
to stay tied in. I mean, OnScript is great, but I, you try to stay tied into a field and keep dialogue partners when you're pastoring and you're dealing with past, um, church issues. Um, it's just the easiest thing to do and um, to stay with something you kind of know. And it's kind of just keeping sharpened. I can jump into the wisdom literature and know what people are doing, stay somewhat current in the field. And, um, and I think if when um, I'm always jealous when I hear you guys working and, and colleagues who are in academics, I think I can't do that breadth anymore of, of canonical kind of, of thought. Um, so probably it's as much a matter of convenience, um, but I'm still fascinated by it. Um, I mean, books are coming out now. Wisdom literature is being rethought in a lot of ways. And um, so I think it's a pretty exciting place to be. Yeah, and I think um, it, we'll, we'll come to the story of God uh, commentary in, in a bit, but uh, even in reading your Proverbs commentary in that series, um, it felt like there were some new insights there, that you were seeing things uh, newly or freshly, especially towards the end of that. And I, re I remember the chapter on Proverbs 31. I, I was doing a Bible study on Proverbs, uh, so I was using that commentary as kind of my main read-through. And I would sometimes grab little bits to bring them to this Bible study with students. Um, and when we got to Proverbs 31, I just said, all right, I'm just going to read this whole chapter to you. And I just sat there and read it. <laughs> so there's some really, it's, and it really felt very fresh um, and like new insights going on there. Yeah. And for me, I mean, I, I just proposed to a friend we have, and I won't say more, to do a book on Proverbs 30 and 31, those two chapters. There's wild kind of poetry and symbolism and, and cultural engagement going on that I think people overlook. And, and having just written on them again recently, yeah, it's funny. You come back and you think, I didn't ever saw this stuff the first time. And, um, and because it's, uh, yeah, story God, we can get to it, but 900 sayings, you know, that um, there's an incredible amount of diversity there that, that every time you come back to a saying, there's just a new puzzle to look at again. Yeah, actually, uh, so I noticed on the back, we should just talk about it now, the story of God Bible commentary. Um, on the back, it's endorsed by uh, Andy Stanley. And I was wondering how you got Andy Stanley. Was that the series endorsement or is that the Proverbs endorsement? It must have been um, a series. Yeah, that's a series. <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't ask Andy <laughs> <No>. Stanley. <laughs> I just did no. a podcast interview on a book uh, last week, and I said, okay, it was with this American Bible Society. They were going to put out a podcast. I said, who else have you had on this podcast series? They're like, so far, we've only interviewed you and uh, Andy Stanley. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so during the interview, Good. I tried to sneak in as much necessity of the Hebrew Bible as possible. Like I might, I might have even said this is why we can't unhitch uh, these ideas. So, um, so what's going on with this Bible series, uh, this commentary series? Obviously, there's lots of commentary series out there and coming out. Um, and how do you see this one as positioned differently, kind of in the marketplace of ideas? Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, if you're in any onscript listener is going to know, narrative is a big deal, um, pro and con, and um, and this goes back. I know these series probably go back ten or fifteen years. The planning. And um, pastors want stuff, commentary that helps them use narrative and preaching. So that was the origin of this. I mean, I, uh, Zondervan was doing another series as like kind of an exegetical series at the same time. And this one was far more meant to be helpful to pastors into the pulpit and pastoral use and teaching. And so um, let's take story as our framework and think through the canon. Um, and so that... I think that pastoral involvement that there were these um, working groups, you know, they'd call in 100 pastors, whatever they were, and they would pitch frameworks and ideas and discussions and say, what would this look like for you? So I think that that kind of aspect to it, I mean, a lot of commentaries, um, you know, that's their same goal. 
but the way this one used story to say, how does that help a pastor? And yet, um, yeah, light on academic work, but not um, not out of touch with the scholarly world. Yeah, definitely did did feel light, but not out of touch. Um, the uh, but the taking a narrative approach to Proverbs has. I mean, that's probably going to be the hardest. You know, next to Ecclesiastes or or the Psalms, that must have been the most difficult book. I know. Yeah, I feel like a kid. Whenever I talk about Proverbs in writing on it, I always feel like in a in a series. I always feel like the kid in the room with his hand up again. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This doesn't work with Proverbs. This is nine hundred sayings. There's no plot. There's no. Um, there are no narratives. There's no real historic characters. I mean, everything that, that you'd typically do for a commentary, and especially for something like narrative, um, gets pushed onto Proverbs. And um, I think what I liked about it is there's a freedom just to deal with the sayings, which was real, my real joy. And then in the pastoral sections, you can say, well, look, we have a whole 2,000-year history in, in Jewish history of saying, okay, now we can think about where this fits in the history of um, Jewish thought and Christian redemption and that kind of thing. So... Um, so the story gets worked in there, and and one of the other things that I do, um, uh, who's the metaphor um, philosopher Johnson, Mark Johnson, yeah, right, Mark S. He's, Johnson. He's got this stuff on. Um, it's not in the metaphor book, but it's in. Um, I'll, I've lost where it is. Where he talks the about body a and the mind or one of those. Yeah, or? yeah, I think it's okay. the body and the mind, and yeah. and he deals with the idea of um, of an anecdote or an aphorism or a character. Well, in Proverbs, you got a character who does something, and he talks through that mental processing. So you get this person acts, and there's consequence. And we, we framework that. We storyboard that um, to understand the motives and the actions of these people. And then he kind of helps and says, look, there's ethical um, testing and growth going on there. If you do these kind of things and act these kind of ways and desire this kind of stuff, you might end up becoming this kind of person. And so I tried to draw on that a little bit and say um, each proverb is a, is a little micro-narrative. It's this little story that you play with as in your ethical learning. Yeah. Actually, there's something very similar in uh, is Asnat Bartor uh, is an Israeli scholar who talks about the narratizing of law and Hebrew scripture. So, you know, if you can think of Hammurabi, whether Hammurabi is representative of actual legal theory in the Middle East or uh, in Mesopotamia is debatable, but it's very conditional. You know, if you do this, then that. Where... Um, the uh, strict conditional logic, where in the Hebrew Bible, she notes, you get very similar themes and tropes, and sometimes the same uh, condition with a punishment or condition with a reaction. But instead of saying if then, it's when you see that, you know, your enemy's animal is uh, struggling under its load. And so it, it actually creates a little scene where you're an actor in the scene. And it always leaves an unfinished resolution to the story. And the resolution to the story is you acting ethically in that circumstance. And so, and she actually shows how no other legal codes in the ancient Near East do this, uh, do this thing. So it's all creating, like you said, creating micro-narratives through law. So I wonder, sorry, that was just a diatribe. Yeah, no, that's, that's good because you guys had, um, you know, Robert Alter on uh, not long ago in his new big translation and I, um, you know, I'm just jumping up and down. I'm highlighting and flagging pages because as you deal with the English translation, one, the Proverbs is very, like when you talk about the visual portrayal of Proverbs, the heart, the hand, well, the hand becomes work, the heart becomes desire. And any, any chance an English tr- translation has in Proverbs of, redu- of taking a concrete, physical, visible, imaginable object and turning it into a concept, it does. Hmm. It's terrible. And so it's great to have 
alter, and some translations, go, they're just inconsistent. They don't know what to do. And an alter does a great job of saying, look what you're losing every time you do this. This real punctiliar, this really terse Hebrew image that draws you into a physical scene. And, um, and you're forced to kind of decide, may do this kind of ethical reasoning around it. And, but you get into, um, yeah, the English kind of takes the edge off of that a little bit and says, here's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, were you using uh, NRSV translation throughout that series? Is so that was NIV. That was NIV. That's right. Yeah, and, and I've I've now worked with ESV, um, finishing a commentary, and they're um, you know they're leaning on, they're not getting too far from the tradition with the saying, so you kind of end up with a similar, um, yeah, style. And yeah, I, maybe I could ask you uh, on translation: Is there any kind of prototypical translation problem in the Proverbs where the, the, the tradition is going one way, but you, if you had your druthers, you would actually push them in a different direction with English language? Yeah, I think um, an and altar does this too. And I, it's all throughout that commentary, fronting. And so you, do this, you get this in narrative a lot. Jacob um, you know, is at the front of the sentence, and then the English says, uh, he gave this to Jacob. Jacob he gave this to. Why? Because now I've got Jacob, and Proverbs does a lot of fronting of, um, of, a, of reversing of sayings. Like, clouds and wind without rain is what? Well, then, then the English just turns around and says, you know, like, a, it gives you the, the, the topic first and then the comment. Is that a false gift one? Uh, it's a false gift, uh, a gift, a promise of a gift not given. Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you start with, um, and I think it's alter, but Michael Fox, it's the same thing. You've got a riddle. And it's really provocative, especially if you can imagine oral teaching. You set up this riddle real slow, and now your mind's going to, well, what's like that? Well, there's a lot of things like that. And, um, and that's, the, that's one of the first things the English does is flips those back around and, um, and then simplifies them. And, uh, and you really lose that, the, the riddle form. Yeah. Are you aware of any English translation that actually tries to handle this? I mean, what, what you're actually calling for is... I think we'd classically call a more wooden translation, right? Uh, or I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the word literal, literalistic, uh, because we, we really mean it almost like a transliterated translation where the, where the order is maintained, right? Yeah, and I, um, it's funny, though, because in poetry, I don't know that literal fits. I think for, for Alter, there's um, it's syntax, it's cognitive, you know, uh, that's going on in the midst of that. That you're losing, so we think we're actually giving a more paraphrased version, but we're actually just changing it entirely. We're really changing the meaning when you do something like that. Yeah, I, um, yeah. Maybe we we want to say a, a syntactically accurate translation. Do you know of any uh, English translation that follows the syntax? No, I, they're probably like maybe GPS English. The, the English Standard Version is um, it's hit and miss. It's maybe fifty fifty. You don't quite know why they get it right sometimes and sometimes not. And then Alter, of course, it's a, it's a hobby horse of his, so he gets it right every time. And, um, you know, I haven't checked. Jonathan Klein, uh, a colleague of ours, has a, a little book called Proverb Bidet with syntax and grammatical insights. And if you haven't seen this little book, um, he's, it's got Greek, Greek he did his uh, Greek at, uh, in five minutes a day and a Hebrew in five minutes a day. And then he just finished this little one. What, if, what about a Proverb Bidet? And he can only do 300 of them, you know, for a year. So he picks some between chapters 10 and 22, uh, kind of that main Solomonic section. And he's, um, it's just worth seeing. Uh, in fact, it's coming out this month, so I was asked to look at it and endorse it. And, and he's, 
his poetry, I, it'll 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 rival Alters. I mean, Jonathan's so creative. Jonathan he Klein. Gets this, yeah, you heard um, it here a, first. A, yeah, Hendrickson. So Jonathan, this one you owe me um, for this. But he's very clever, and he's such a good syntactic linguistic scholar that um, he did his work at Harvard, and um, and he this, he captures so much that you wouldn't see. And yeah, so those that's all I can really think of that gets it right. Yeah, so speaking of this uh, syntax and parataxis, which I guess parataxis is kind of a less of an issue with um, with aphorism, but um, I remember at one point we had a discussion about kind of the ritualized reading of Proverbs, and I wonder if that fits into it in some way as well as uh, hearing the syntax and the alliteration and um, the setup, the setup takedown, uh, Push, pushing back and forth on certain topics and themes. Does that fit into this kind of... I don't remember if you developed the ritualized reading uh, any further than our discussion. I did in the, in the sense that this stuff, we, it just seems uh, fit. Canonically, Proverbs is sitting there with the scrolls and with, with festival seasons. There's festival imagery all throughout the book. Um, wine and drinking and um, this family gatherings. And so there's th- thematically rituals all over the place. But, but probably uh, Jonathan Klein's, his, his doctoral thesis there at Harvard was on linguist, linguistic assonance and that kind of thing. So it's, it's canonical. It's not just Proverbs, but he deals with a lot of Proverbs. But then um, Knut Heim, who we both know, uh, his stuff on this is, is terrific. So his earlier book, maybe Apples of Gold and Setting of Silver or something like that, and then um, or Grapes of Gold. And then, uh, and then what's the second little book? It's... Um, Poetic Illusion or something like that, Poetic Imagery. Um, I'm losing a big, giant Isenbronze book, like 600 pages. And he does a terrific job of saying, look at all the sound you're losing. And the sounds are setting up. They're building in these little, like, anticipations of the moral lessons. And, the, and you, could un, you could see how in oral teaching or even in reading, um, visually these things capture you. And in English, there's no real desire to bring that back over other than Haim or, you know, Jonathan or something like that. All right. So it sounds like there's lots of work to be done here still. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, so is there any, you know, having worked through, uh, I learned from having you as a friend uh, that these commentaries or these long contracts, I didn't have any idea that you get this kind of long time to work through these. And, you, of course, you have to work steadily over that time. You can't uh, push it to the end. Uh, so I wonder if there's anything that taking that time and working through the Proverbs Things that you just never saw before, like central insights, uh, kind of came to the fore for you personally. In in working on proverbs, yeah, yeah, central insights. I mean, I think um, maybe the power of a saying, like an, of an individual aphorism, that we've lost. You know that uh, you don't need. Um, I don't know. If this came up. You had this little thing that went viral about how much of the Bible to read every day. <laughs> And I was going to chime in. We're not going to talk about. It could go there. And I and I let it go. But I was going to say, you know, Proverbs is just a great one because you could just you only need one. Um, a lot of them. Now some of them are quite um, simple, but it, there's some of them that you can just sit on for a long time, and especially when you're in the Hebrew, and it's just a puzzle that you can tease around and, and work over. And I think I learned that kind of patience to sit on a saying, because any 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 commentary writer can just tell you what they said you know like well i'll just check the other commentaries and kind of work out what's hard here and the real discipline was to sit with these things and you think oh this is what i was supposed to do is wrestle with it and try and figure out and you know every once in a while i get gutsy and just say here's what i think i see regardless of what 
And, and what's nice about that, this is an aside, is I'll do something and I'll think, you know, I just translated that word this way because that's what it means and nobody does that. And then altar comes along and it's like, oh, who? He takes it literally too. And that, that for me was pretty helpful to think, oh, I was a little bit led astray by some of the, I mean, I, make, I don't want to make the English translations sound terrible, but I, I wasn't seeing things that I wanted, I felt wanted to be free to see in the Hebrew that um, that, that um, happened in that writing process. Um, opened me up. And I'm, well, I'm just thinking as you say that, like where in the Christian tradition are we ever taught to just sit with a saying and mull it over, right? Um, that, that seems so foreign to any kind of seminary or theological education or Sunday school or anything. It's how do we map out? How do we outline? How do we figure, the, you know, figure out categories for all this stuff? And we think we've understood it that way. Okay, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you said you had uh, read or looked at Wilkine's uh, work on obituary for wisdom literature, and I wanted to know whether you think that that genre should be dead, as he says. Yeah, so I, um, I, I give it just some framework and story. Somebody, um, maybe a colleague or somebody we know, emailed me when they saw that book advertised, and I said, no, nah, I don't buy it. And so then finally, then I, then I heard, I saw a link to a little podcast he did on it, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to read this book. So I got it, and in the in the beginning, the metaphor of um, he's drawing on some metaphors of, of death and obituary and on uh, Cinderella. You know this. He, it's this is, and I thought, oh well, it's over the top. And then you get towards the end of that introduction, you think, oh wait a minute, <laughs> uh, Will's a smart guy, you know. So you think, and so then, you know, as I get uh, later into the process, I, it, by in the second second or third chapter, and he starts dealing with genre theory. I, I just wrote him and said, done. I mean, you got it. You know, you, you've nailed a problem that we have um, around genre and where these categories become um, framed very tightly. This thing uh, got assigned to us in the 19th century. Nobody really questioned it. And so then as a result, I mean, this is the real genius of that is we've not, we're not hearing Job as a prophet, which he is in canonically speaking. We're not hearing Ecclesiastes as a prophet or as, a, or as lament or as law, which they are. And so then, and then as the book ends, Will kind of brings it back and says, you know, we can, this, let's go with wisdom, not wisdom literature, and still allow the concept to work. Um, I, think that, I think that book, um, and, and so maybe some of the rhetoric, is going to help push it, you know, over the top a little bit and say to people, okay, we can now take this seriously and say, um, let's, let's not f- force, you only can read Job against Proverbs. And um, that's the real strength. And that's where his, I think his doctoral work was in Job. We're just not hearing all of Job. Yeah. Well, and, and conversely, you don't hear wisdom in uh, the, ritual, the, the ritual life of Israel. You don't hear wisdom, like if, if wisdom literature is this, or even for New Testament scholarship. I mean, for me, when I was thinking about wisdom literature writ large, uh, and then you go, well, what do you do with an epistle? Well, for me, an epistle feels like wisdom literature. It reads like wisdom literature. But um, because it's a Pauline epistle, we just don't think of it that way. Um, so, yeah, so it, the, the, the categorical knife cuts both ways here. Um, yeah, I, I was the same way. I was kind of like, eh, seems a little dramatic, but I'm sure. And yeah, I think it's an Oxford book, which they don't tend towards dramatic titles. <laughs> But then I, I met him and I, I read his little article on it that he sum, summarized it. And I thought, okay, yeah, this actually makes sense. And I'm not sure. I still keep, you know, like anything else, like a good, bad habit. I keep, I can't help but say the wisdom literature, 
if for no other reason, I want to say like, well, the Torah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a handy reference to a collection of texts that we all know what we're talking about. Um, but outside of that, I'm less convinced as well. Yeah. Do you want to add something to that? Oh, just that, you know, I, I wrote, I wrote to Will and I said, you're sending me back through my, this newer commentary I'm writing and <laughs> making little changes. Cause I think, oh no, that's not, that's not going to look good against his work a year from now. And I'm glad I got it before I went final. And he said, oh, it's okay. I still teach a course on wisdom literature. I still write stuff. You know, it's like, it's going to take us a while to grow out of this thing and um, uh, this habit. But when we do, um, yeah, it could be particularly helpful for canonical theological reading of the canon. Yeah. Um, well, I want to turn a little bit towards your kind of life as a scholar, what you've been doing for the last decade or, or so. Um, and, of course, you said uh, you're a pastor in an Anglican church. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that happened, because you didn't begin Anglican, right? You became Ang- Anglican. Um, and then how did you uh, move into the pastorate? Um, and then also maybe you could, well, we can come back to, like, what does your life look like right now as well? Yeah. Um Good. So, yeah, I mean, I, I had um, what, eight or nine years or something in the just doing academic work and teaching. And um, and we moved to Ithaca, New York. So that's a whole nother like a 10 minute, 20 minute story well, that took us there. And um, and I had become Anglican. Yeah. So to go back to the earlier question in England, we were there and we were able, a couple of us to make money on the weekends going to these uh, parish churches out in the out in the country and preaching and running services because there was such a shortage of priests and um, and we're out at these churches and um, and our kids are just fascinated by the liturgy by the seasons by the colors they have things they do each service and we realize we're trying to like catechize our kids and that's fine I mean people can catechize but but this but the ritual is is working on our kids without us doing anything and they'd come home and say why did we do that well why is it that color why did we breathe that today and you realize, oh, all of a sudden there's a conversation in our home, like Deuteronomy 6. Father, what does this mean to you? And um, so now we've got this uh, automatic dialogue happening. And then we move back to the U.S., and all of a sudden we missed it. You know, you'd go to church and you'd think, everything falls on the pastor and the sermon. Um, we don't have the creeds. We're not tied into history the way we were. Um, it's not embodied the way it was. And so then th- that started an ordination process maybe 15 or 16 years ago. And when we were in Ithaca... Um, I had never finished that process. We started, hey, let's just teach people Anglican prayer. And that group, we began to pray together in our home. Six people maybe coming over, five people. When it grew to about 40 and most of those people not going to church anywhere, we, I just contacted some friends and say, we need to make this official and call it a congregation and be under authority. And um, that was eight years ago maybe that um, that thing kicked off. So. Then I was pastor, and it was it was a funny move because, as you know, I mean, I'm an academic, um, not a very good one, but I mean, by by disposition and the things I like to do, and now I'm doing this work, and I'm a military officer, and I have no skills to this day for doing that kind of pastoral thing, and it was just like God said, but that's okay, you know, it was like my PhD supervisor. Here's your here's, but here, I'd really like it if you did this, and um, and that next thing I was doing it. And it's been beautiful. I mean, maybe I'll say something later about that, about how now I'm doing theological interpretation of Scripture with an academic training. And I think that's, that's the best job in the world, you know, um, when you, you're just thinking about the church every day as you read. Yeah, that's good. And what, um, I guess, I, I think a lot of people are, I, I talk to lots of people who are pastors who want to get into academics, people who are thinking about, can you do both? And you know, I, there's a, been this, I've seen these online debates about whether you can actually be a pastor scholar, whether that's a real thing or not. 
but I would say, um, just looking at your output, you seem to have been able to do both. Um, so I wonder what your actual week-to-week looks like so that you can maintain the, the scholarly side and, and the pastoral side. Because as a former pastor, I know pastoring can eat up every free hour and unfree hour of your life. So, Yeah, and I think um, I get asked this a lot, and uh, um, I've got a, a friend who always tells me, who's a very accomplished academic, who's also a pastor, and he said, you, name one pastor theologian out there. And I always think, He's, he's already excluded me. He does it every time. And I realize he doesn't take me very seriously. But, um, but I think um, there's a book uh, by a Jesuit, Antoine Serriange, called The Intellectual Life. And in there, he talks about this. He talks about what is it to be a monk, to be a teacher. If you spend those six years, okay, so Catholic education now, those six years in training, and you get all those tools down, which is kind of like what, what the PhD does plus some teaching, now, when you get into the pastoral life or to your, to your ministry life, you're only going to need about an hour or two a day to keep that up. And he, um, and he says that's going to vary for what people can do. And I've always thought that's kind of pretty close. I don't know that I get two hours a day, but I carve out sections at certain times of the day where I'm going to write and read. And then I, then I build often the pastoral life around that. And, um, and sometimes they, you, know, you don't touch any scholarship for a week. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, I get 20 minutes to an hour dealing with something, um, which I couldn't do. So that, that's why I mentioned Serdiange is because I couldn't do that if I hadn't taught Pentateuch eight times, you know, or taught a wisdom literature course and poetry course six times. I, I know the literature having, uh, you know, dealt with it with students again and again, that's, that makes that process a lot easier and picking up books and dealing with them. And I find working with pastors in our context, in, in my Anglican context, they just don't know the literature. They don't know the names. They don't know how to get into books, how to use them quickly. And I think if there's an answer to how you could do it, you could. But you've got to, somewhere in there, there's got to be some set-aside devoted time to, to build up the, kind of the foundation. By time, you mean years. of Yeah, so that's, that's really good insight that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that I, I think some people have in mind that I will just always be a part-time pastor, part-time scholar, or full-time pastor and full-time scholar, and I'll just keep those parallel throughout that time. But in reality, and the same thing I did, is, is you have to carve out a few years where you go do serious graduate work. Teaching makes you think through things in ways that, um, that you can't just on your own in your study. Um, so maybe it's not entirely realistic for most people um, without that dedicated time to do it. No, and I suppose, I, I suppose part of what I'm trying to do, I, I might have mentioned, I'm creating a, a community of pastor scholars that are Anglican. So there are other Center for Pastor Theologians, and I'm much more dealing with people who already have a serious academic degree. Um, and now how do we, not just how do we sustain a community, but how do we impress upon the leadership that prior to our generation, and still in England to this day, that, that kind of scholar is, is respected and, and desired. Well, you, you're going to have to desire it and value it and pay for it and, and, and honor people who could do that work. So I'm, that's my campaign and my own kind of Anglican part of the world is we're going to be 20 years from now and we're not going to have scholars in our tradition if we don't think through how to develop them. And they're, not, they're not going to be part-time doing night school. I mean, you're just not going to get there. Um, or you're going to break your family or something. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, so what do you think, uh, just practically speaking, what is... Uh, being fully involved in the uh, pastoral work, what does that bring to your scholarship that you wouldn't have otherwise? 
Yeah, I mean, I th so the clarity in what you're doing, so if you go to do work, um, could I pull this off? Could, would it be helpful? Would it be, um, be productive and in, in bear fruit in the, in the life of a church? And if I had to take something like this and explain it to somebody in my um, congregation, how would I do that? And, um, and, I, and I, I, don't, like, I think some people feel like um, there's a tension. For me, the two are living with, the, with one another all the time. I mean, I hit stuff. I mean, that's three-quarters of my sermons. This is something scholarly as an insight that opens my eyes to the text that becomes counseling and preaching for that period. And um, so I think those two um, kind of go hand-in-hand in, hand, um, in terms of what the pastoral life, yeah, maybe slows me down with the text, but it also it frees me up to, um, if I hear it between the text, I really... I care less about whether the guild is going to approve of my intertextual reference here. Um, I feel free to think, okay, there's a freedom here that the church has always exercised to say, I have an argument for why there's there. And um, I, yeah, I make connections in, in pastoral work that I wouldn't have just made in scholarship. Hmm. Um, would you say that, I wouldn't say it's a downside, but would you say there's anything that makes it especially difficult uh, to work as both in pastoral and scholarly roles? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, um, you know, the, the academic offers to participate in committees and to write it just continue to go down. And so I think to myself, well, I don't want to, uh, my community is an academic community, you know, at Cornell University and Ithaca College. So they value that, but, but we can only value it so much um, in, until we can afford an assistant or something. And, and you can, you know, I, I'm of that sense now, if I lose enough, you'll just get out of touch. And... Um, my language is, you know, my German is, you know, all those things just slide away and, and you lose what Serdyanj talked about, those key tools that you keep working with for a long time. And I haven't solved that one. You know, those things are just hard to maintain. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if the, uh, the upside of clarity, I mean, there is this, um, you're belonging to two worlds, right? And so, especially um, now that we have social media where our fear of missing out can be increased, you know, well beyond our uh, psychological capacity to handle it. Yeah, I can't imagine um, how much it must uh, that you can feel like you're on the outsides of of the community that's working away at these issues that you could actually contribute to. Um, so maybe it's emotional as much as anything else. Yeah, you do feel. Uh, I show up at, at SBL, and you're not a part of the of the gang. And then, the, and then when you get around the pastoral world, all these guys are talking about is pastoral stuff. And then they, they, it's almost like they, def, they don't defer to you, but it's like, well, you, you, you go over there and do your academic stuff. Um, so there's that slight sense of not membership in a particular community, you know. Although I, I have to say that I always feel like I'm completely out of, out of it at SBL as well. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to feel like you own it at SBL. So. Yeah, if you, if you walk around there, a lot of if you just sit and look, you know, a lot of, as a pastor, that's I watch there a lot. A lot of people are just lost, you know, they're just all over the place. Um, okay, so uh, what are your next upcoming projects that you're working on now? I've been working on vocation and work for a long time. I uh, we had a Lilly Endowment grant for years at Chesterton House that I worked with, and I've developed a good deal around vocation and calling, and I have you know criticisms around the the do what you love and follow your passion kind of stuff. Um, and I have, because of people in my church and their expertise, a lot of thoughts about how 
once you got to Calvin historically, people were thinking in terms of not just choice of vocation, but economy. And how does my job relate to this developing economic global world? And I don't know that we do a good job of that. And then, um, uh, well, immortality is, is a major concept in the history of vocation. So anyway, that, has, that to me is really fascinating. And I'm in conversation with one or two publishers about it. But to sell a book like that, when all these work and faith movements are going on at major universities, you're just not, I think we've concluded I just would never sell it. Um, I just don't have the, the name, the profile to do that. So that's a project I want to figure out to do blogging or some other way because um, I, I spent so much time there. So it's kind of like, it's always on the back burner. I'm always reading in that area. And then, um, and then this other idea to do something on Proverbs 30 and 31. So I, I did get asked to take the, um, the History of Reception um, commentary series for Blackwell so um, I don't have a contract. So, so Blackwell, I, have, I don't have, you haven't given me a contract yet, but they don't have anybody to write that volume. And um, you know that, that Through the Centuries series that Wiley Blackwell does. And um, so I've, I've agreed to put in a proposal, but they're really probably not going to have a Proverbs person interested in doing it. So that would be a, what, that'd be a very a pastoral historical project. And um, so that's kind of on my mind, you know, that I might go do that. Sounds like a lot of work. Yes, thirty years worth of work probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the uh, the vocation thing. So it makes sense that somebody who has a lot of you have military experience, life experience, pastoral experience, and you're a wisdom scholar, and you want to do a book on vocation. That's I I know you, so I know it's very nuts and bolts, down to earth, actually practical, cuts through all the crap. And you and they said it was just merely an author platform issue. I think so, I and mean, I think I could. Pr- um, if you think about what's going on at, at um, how many seminaries and universities are doing work in vocation stuff and putting out books. Uh, it's and, just a com- competition marketplace. Yeah. So it's already a flooded marketplace, and you don't have a big name. So if, if it was another topic, yeah, maybe you could, you could – ritual. Um, nobody, not enough people are doing that in your field that you just, you've, you've got a great opportunity, whereas work is kind of like, again, yeah, it's – yeah. No, that's my been my MO to this point is find a wide open field where I can put my mediocre stuff because people don't know it's mediocre until the, the better stuff comes along. So it's the best till somebody catches you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's worked so far. Um, OK, well, uh, we're going to do a lightning round here. Uh, you know, the rules of the lightning round. I do, yeah. Okay, so um, anything goes, but we're going to try and keep it brief for most of these. Uh, first question: Are you willing to do a Henry Kissinger impersonation right now? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it! Okay, um, this is not a this is not a question. It's more of a statement. The Air Force is for little girls. Change my mind. Wow! Uh, lightning <laughs> round. Change your mind. That gets really the- theologically complicated. Um, my daughter is in the Air Force, so right. So for little girls. Um, you know, um, yeah, the, the military needs to diversify. It needs to grow into American world. It needs, um, there's gifts and, and, uh, and perspective that women bring to the service. They're really underrepresented. The Navy's doing the best, I think, but um, Air Force and the Army are pretty far behind. So I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, Go more uh, like the IDF. Yeah. Uh, um, combatant fields get very complicated, obviously, uh, but... Outside of that, um, yeah, so it's been good for us as a, I think, as a service to diversify. 
My my dad joke on day one of the semester is uh, I wanted to join the military, but I ended up joining the Air Force. So. <laughs> my I don't know if you know, my boys are in the Army, and um, oh, that's right. I, I never would have planned that. It's not like I told my kids, "You better join." Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I I'm like all of a sudden you ask that question, I realize I guess I should be affirmative because <laughs> my kids all serve. <laughs> because your little girl is in the Air Force. Um, uh, coming back to a question I was going to ask anyways is at, at the Society for Biblical Literature annual meeting, which is in San Diego this next year, which I'm very excited about, um, what do you look more forward to most and what do you dread most at that meeting? Um, you know, the crowds, um, just the massive kind of crowds feel uh, tiring to me, you know, and the book tables and that kind of thing. There's just kind of a draining energy. I see fewer and fewer papers. You know, I try and meet with a couple publishers. Uh, the Scripture Hermeneutic Seminar is kind of a... It's, it's interesting. I mean, the topics get better and better, but the topics actually matter secondary to, you know, 100 and something. I don't know how many people in that broader community, probably a couple hundred associated with it, that get together, and there's um, the, the kind of common vision and the challenging and the quality of scholarship going up. Uh, that's a unique thing that I look forward to, and... And two or three friends that I just, that I look forward to every year. Yeah, we should describe that um, the Scripture and Hermeneutics. Well, it's now the Scripture Collective, so it's Scripture and Hermeneutics, Scripture and Dogmatics, Scripture in the Church, which I'm on the committee for. Uh, and I think there's one Scripture in Higher Education coming out this year. Oh wow! But yeah, for those of you that don't know, at Society for Biblical Literature is kind of all biblical scholars around the world, and then Institute for Biblical Research (IBR) is kind of all um, the confessing scholars. I don't know what their official stance is, but it's people who would con- consider themselves confessionally Christian. Um, and then the Scripture Collective is... Did, were you one of the founding members of the Scripture Collective? Is that correct? No. I. I uh, it started probably in the mid-'90s. So Craig, st- Craig Bartholomew started it as Scripture Hermeneutics. And then I worked with him when I was at Redeemer with him and kind of chaired that committee for a few years. And I think then Heath, maybe Thomas, took it over. And then that's right then it just started to expand Scripture and Doctrine, Scripture and Church. And, yeah, it's a creative movement. And I think also for um, biblical religion scholars, well, scholars of all kinds, everybody can understand, uh, it's just competitive. It's competition everywhere. I mean, there are some people who are, like, they won't even tell you the name or the topic of their next book because they're afraid you're going to write on it, you know. And you just, it's almost like being around a bunch of, underpaid actors or something right? when my <laughs> yeah. students who work in modeling or acting and here in new york city or singing you know they describe their industry to me like what it's like the tryouts and the rejections i was like oh my goodness that's exactly what academics is like uh, all all the narcissism and stuff that goes with so yeah i think one of the great things about this scripture collective and ibr more generally as well it's 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 actually a group of people who are trying to get together and encourage one another and band together and um, critique one another in helpful ways rather than merely just compete with each other. So it's, it's been really good for me. Um, and I think I got introduced to it through you as well. Um, okay. Um, big question. Will the Church of England survive? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. You want to put a, you want to put one or two reasons behind that? I think you know it's it's going to be like the the Episcopal Church. Um, do you think the Church of England and England will it survive? I think um, there's enough people on 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 different sides of the argument that want it to continue, and um, 
And within that, there are, there's negotiation and there's arbitration going on to continue dialogue. So I, I think it won't, um, you know, as, as essentially as the thing gets tight and you begin to see that it begin to fail, it's a little bit like people begin to become more realistic about what they'll do. I mean, it's not impossible that people just um, refuse to be cooperative and discuss and move forward together. But I, it does seem to me like when the numbers get small enough and you and you're have a morning parish service with six people, you got to start thinking through, are we going to, and I think it'll, there'll be some resiliency. Those people who want to take, the church has never, um, it's always sprung out of low points historically. Hmm. I think, so. Good, good. That's, that was the most positive spin I could imagine. <laughs> um, here's another tough question. What is the most significant book in biblical studies or theology of the last generation for you? Yeah, pass. I, I, I sat and thought about this one thought, what would I say? Because I, I, you try to predict them and you think, I'm not going to get any of the ones. The, oh yeah, so for me, um, even that gets hard. Uh, the work of Oliver O'Donovan. Um, okay. Yeah, that's fair. The work of, yeah. Yeah, because here's a guy doing theology, biblical studies, culture, all at once in the same sentence in every paragraph. And uh, and the, you find it in the Catholic tradition, but it's kind of like, for me, that's the goal. Is, is Nobody's going to do it that well, or few of us will. Um, but here, it's like this guy, I've got six balls in the air, and it's history and tradition and um, scholarship and philosophy and theology and biblical languages, and I'm going to work. And that, that to me, um, yeah, inspires like a, a vision for how to do, to do good pastoral scholarship. It, it could be maybe another answer for you would be... Um any sermon series by Andy Stanley. That's right. That's right. Well, I was going to say that was a, but you said one, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you have any good one-liner jokes? I don't. Good knock-knock. Um, oh, what's a good knock-knock? Yeah. You know, Callum uh, Carmichael, you know, my friend um, who's now retired, we'd get together for coffee every week for seven years, and he had a joke and an, and an aphorism every week, and then I'd think, I wrote these down, and then they're gone. It's a gift, I think, for people who can hold on to them. And I think if I could go back, you know, there's Scottish and English jokes and biblical scholars jokes, and I can't retrieve any of them. Do you have one? Yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I have my standard ones, but I think I've told them all on air, so I don't want to repeat. Um, I have a series of lawyer jokes that I um, am contractually bound not to say. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I did an NDA on that one. Um, Okay, so in your particular field of wisdom literature, the, the dying field of wisdom literature, if we can put it that way, um, what is something, uh, a topic, an approach that you would like to see go the way of the do dodo bird? You think is no longer helpful, maybe it was never helpful, needs to go away? Um, uh, yeah, this is a hard one. Comparative work. Uh, Amenetope and Tohep and... Uh, Speaking to like comparison, ancient Near Eastern, yeah, comparative uh, work with Egyptian Near stuff, Eastern, Mesopotamian wisdom, Sumerian wisdom, and I don't. Um, I know there's a, a valid, you know, there's things we learn from it, but it's kind of like when you come away from a book and and um, and we're, we're we're just looking for parallels, and we're losing the uniqueness of the biblical poetry, and and I don't know. I ask this question a lot of friends who work in comparative work and say, okay, well, this is, fa like, give me something. Like, give me a reason why this is, like, what have you learned that's absolutely essential? And I don't know that I've ever had great answers. You know, that you, if you, you would never have any other way. You'd totally read the Book of Proverbs differently if you, if, you, um, if you hadn't done all this comparative work. And I don't usually get good answers. So that's you think, the first one. 
I mean, is there any sense, and I have no idea, I know Hellenistic Judaism, you have more um, influx of folklore and, and, and wisdom literature in the Levant. So, you know, thinking that the wisdom literature might have struck the ear of somebody like, oh, I've heard this before, and now it's a twist on what I know. Or, or you know, like the 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 flood narrative or the infant exposure motif with Moses. Um, you know, this idea that we know this story, and now... and. Uh, and now, because I know the story, when I hear the biblical iteration, it strikes me differently. Uh, you don't you don't think there's anything like that possibly going on? I do. I think That's when you a get genuine to, question into Hellenism, I think when you get past the Persian and into the into the Hellenistic culture, there's stuff going on in Proverbs that we think, okay, this looks like the Greek Symposia, and this, and now we do know that there's an overlap of culture. Um, and there's stuff. Uh, the Proverbs 31 woman um, almost certainly has like an awareness of Greek uh, Hellenistic wisdom and. Uh, kind of Gnostic, um, Platonic ideas. And I think that, yeah, so the fruitfulness, but it's like New Testament. In New Testament, we can do it because the, the history, we're just so clear about what we know about the cultures. But you get prior to the Persian period or Persian period, we actually don't know. I don't, I mean, that's my opinion. I don't know that we know enough to say, yeah, Egypt, uh, the, the, the Israelites had uh, Egyptian um, law and wisdom literature at their disposal. And um, I'm, yeah, it's the historic sense. The older you go, the less confident you can be. And then finally, um, oh no, I actually have, I have a little quiz for you. Now, I'll be interested to see how you, I'm going to read you a, a passage of a colleague of mine, actually Matt Lynch, who is um, a co-host here. He, he's, I'm, I think he's trolling me, but he loves to send me these little memes where he just took scriptures and put them on these delightful backgrounds. So this, this scripture is on like a, a sunsetting beach, you know, with birds flying And this is the quote. Uh, So just identify where it's from. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know that one? Um, Well, a parable um, of Jesus. Where's this going to be? Throw him in where there's going to be gnashing. I mean, Matthew 22, 24. Yeah, very good. Uh, Matthew. Uh, Excellent. Okay, here's, here's another one for you. And this one is on a, a beautiful, like, pastel-colored mountainscape. Um, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Mm. Yeah, Jeremiah? That's an excellent guess. Actually, I, I did not get this one. I mean, unless I had, had the reference at the bottom, I would not have known this one. Although it's obvious once you know it. It's in Genesis 40. It's the Joseph story. Ah. Yeah, it's a tricky yeah. one. Yeah. Um, okay. Finally, uh, are you a Proverbs 31 woman? Yes or no? <laughs> no. That's tricky. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Are you a Proverbs 31 person? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a good, good answer. Uh, as we should all be. Um, okay, well, Ryan, thank you very much uh, for spending your time with us. I was a little late coming to you, but um, I've enjoyed all of your writing. I think I've actually read almost every word you've written in publication. Uh, uh, sorry. Yeah. Which, I can't, which I can't say that about many people. Uh, but it's been a pleasure, and thanks for being on OnScript with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love what you guys are doing, and I tune in often, so thanks. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.